morning. It's so great to see you here today. My name is Hannah and I serve with our student life team. Every December, under-resourced families in our community are invited to the Christmas Store, a ministry we support in partnership with other churches that provides parents the opportunity to stretch their hard-earned dollars to purchase affordable gifts for their children. To join in this year, place your new unwrapped gift in one of the collection boxes located throughout our building this week. If you haven't had a chance to get something yet, you can instead purchase gifts online from the Amazon wishlist and have them shipped directly to the Christmas Store location. You can get more info online at weandbible.org slash gift drive. But remember that this is the last week to get your gifts in. This week, we're opening registration for our on-campus Christmas Eve services, and we can't wait to see you there. If you don't already receive them, you can sign up for our weekly emails to get notified when they open at weatonbible.org newsletter. We know that many of you enjoy inviting friends and family, and this year, we've set up a new way to invite. When it opens this week, you can send a postcard invite wherever you choose and add a personalized note for your recipient. Whether your guest is joining online from across the country or is registering for a seat on campus, we're excited to welcome them to services at our campuses this year. That's all for today. Thanks for spending part of your weekend with us and Merry Christmas. Good morning, God's grace and peace to you this morning, whether you're joining us virtually or here in person. Today we gather to celebrate the first Sunday of Advent. During Advent, we think back to all God's people waiting for a savior for so long before he came. And now we anticipate as well the second coming of Jesus when he will reign over all things for all time. We will light an Advent candle in all of these services and we'll hear from different members of our congregation who will read Advent readings via video, courtesy of 2020. Uh, let's stand together and sing some carols that celebrate Jesus' miraculous birth.
walking in darkness have seen a great light. On the, those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, <laughs> Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. As we enter this Advent season, we start by considering hope. 2020 has been a year marked with a lot of changes, with sickness, suffering, sorrow and strife, with division, anger, fear and uncertainty all over the world in our own country, our cities, our churches, our neighborhoods, our families, and even and especially in our own hearts. Many of us are struggling with conflicting thoughts and emotions as we move into Advent, still in the middle of this pandemic, and even with mounting tensions due to this election season. Every year during Advent, we all wait in anticipation for Christmas. It's a season that brings hope all over the world. These days, people speak of many different kinds of hope like hope in the goodness of humanity, or, or hope for time with family, hope for time of relaxation and rest, hope for restored relationships, hope for healing from past experiences, and yeah, even hope for gifts under the tree. These are all good things to hope for, but as we know, just like seasons, they tend to come and go. The lights put up, gift wrapped, garland hung kind of hope that the world offers is just another creative attempt to cope with the reality of our sin and the deepest longings of our souls. The times we live in to continue to remind us of just how fragile and temporary this life is. And the world desperately needs a hope that is real and eternal. As the people of God, this reenactment that we participate in every Advent season of our anticipation of the birth of Christ is a powerful reminder of the profound, eternal, unchanging, and unshakable hope we have because of the incarnation of the Son of God. Because of Emmanuel, God with us. A God who is not removed from our suffering, but, but breaks through the darkness with His light and steps into our brokenness to bring us salvation and eternal joy. So today, let us remember that no matter what we face this year, what we may experience in this life, through Christ our Father as King of all creation has faithfully demonstrated that His future for us is always brighter than both our past and our present. We light this first Advent candle to remind us to take heart, to not be afraid, to have hope in Christ. And as we begin to anticipate Christmas this year, may the God of hope fill us with all joy and peace as we trust in Him, so that we may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. we miss most about not being able to have everyone here in person is the ability to talk as the family of God and to have different people share what God is doing in their lives, even just lifting up their voice in the congregation. So since we can't do that today, we're going to have a few people up here share about what part of the Christmas story has been most meaningful them to them in this particular time. So Glory Grace, what would you say? When I read the Christmas story, I am blessed by the angels the hope that they proclaim to the world through songs of joy and exaltation is beautiful. They radiate Jesus and bring glory to his name wherever they go. Their example encourages me to also shine Jesus' light in the world and to do everything to glorify God. I treasure the message of the angels, good news of great joy, which is our Messiah. I've been thinking a little bit more about Joseph and Mary and how faithful to God's promises they were in a time of uncertainty and in a time of hardship. And it inspires me to make sure my eyes are on what God has said and to trust that it's true. For myself, it's the image of Jesus born in such a humble way as an answer to all of God's promises uh, for so many years ahead of time. It helps me to remember that God will answer all his promises and fulfill them even if they're in ways I wouldn't expect. And in 2020, when all expectations have to be held so loosely, that's a good reminder for me. 
We're going to go into a time with the carols that we're singing being of ones of longing for a savior, of surprise at his humble birth. So I hope that these would speak to us afresh today. Let's stand and sing.
pray. Let us pray. Lord, we are entering a season in which we must remember, we must remember who you are and what you came to do. We are entering a season in the midst of a pandemic that we need to remember who you are and what you came to do. Lord, as we start um, our Advent season, I pray, Lord, in the name of Jesus, that you give us uh, eyes to see and a mind to grasp the beauty of who Jesus is and why is it that he became a human being. I pray, Lord, that by the power of the Spirit, you speak to us this morning. I pray, Lord, that by the power of the Spirit, if there are people here, here present at church or online, Lord, that is listening to this uh, message, Lord, that they may find in Jesus the hope that they're looking for. I pray, Lord, in the name of Jesus, that you use me for the glory of your name, the joy of your people, and the salvation of the lost. Please be with us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And the church says, good morning, familia. Just in case you don't know who I am, listen, listen. I'm Hannibal. Just, I'm like Clark Kent. I look different with glasses. Not really. Today, I have the privilege to start this new Advent, or our Advent series, and we have called this series The Gift. And for the next four weeks, we are going to be talking and remembering and explaining why is it that we celebrate Christmas? And why is it that Jesus is the gift of gift or the ultimate gift? The reason why we gave this uh, series this title is because Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses, uh, chapter 9, verse 15, he calls Jesus the inexpressible gift. For the next four weeks, by God's grace and by the power of the Spirit, we want to share with you and invite you to consider Jesus as the ultimate and inexpressible gift. Today, I get the privilege to talk about the, one of those gifts, uh, one of the things that Jesus gives us, and is hope. Actually, what we're going to talk about is that not only Jesus gives us hope, but that Jesus is hope. Amen? And for that, we're going to be reading from Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. So if you have your Bible and you're here or you're at home, please go to Isaiah chapter 11. If not, don't worry. We're going to be putting these verses on the screen. Could you please stand then for the reading of God's word as a sign of reverence to him and his word. If you are here, could you please say, I'm here. Isaiah chapter 11, starting in verse 1. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his root a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The spirit of counsel and of might. The spirit of knowledge of the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes. Or decide what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Verse 5. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness, um, the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. And the leper will lie down with the goat and the calf with the lion and the yearling and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. Verse 7. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into, into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy, and all my holy mountain for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters covers the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him and his resting place will be glorious. This is the word of the Lord. You may take a seat. 
Today we're going to be talking about three things. We're going to talk about, uh, let me put them on the screen. Can I get the three points on the screen, please? We're going to talk about the king of hope, the kingdom of hope, and the unexpected hope. With the kingdom of hope, obviously, we're going to talk about Jesus. With the kingdom of hope, we're going to talk about what Jesus came to initiate and later on will culminate or fully complete. And with the third point, unexpected hope, how is it that he accomplished that? And why is it that he was successful in what he came to accomplish? With that in mind then, let's start with the first point, the king of hope. So this is an interesting section because the uh, text because it's divided into three different sections. So we got the first section in uh, verses 1 through 5. Second section is verses 6 through 9. And the third section is just verse 10. The one we're looking at right now is verses 1 through 5. And in there we find a description of the character of Jesus. And why is it that Jesus qualifies to be the king of kings? To be the ultimate king, the one that we ought to worship and obey. The reason why I'm saying that is because the way the text starts in verse 2, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, is the Old Testament description of how the Bible in the Old Testament describes when someone was given a special task and his kingdom language. Actually, when you read the Old Testament, you will see time and time again that this will be the way uh, God would call people to a special tasks. So, for example, that would be the case of Moses. That will be the case of David. That will be the case of uh, Joshua and even Elijah as a prophet. So, just in case you don't know this, um, Isaiah is a prophet in the Old Testament, for those of you that are new to church. He's one of the major prophets. And when Isaiah is writing this, this is year about 740 before Jesus. Meaning that this prophecy was made about Jesus 740 years before. And what the text says, and the prophet is saying, is that Jesus was given this special task. That he was chosen by God for a very special task. And that Jesus will be the king of kings that will be the only person that will be able to accomplish this special task. Now, the rest of the text, actually from verses, second part of verse 2 all the way to verse 5, describes why is it that Jesus is different to any other leader, any other king, any other prophet, any other hero in the Bible? And why is it that Jesus is unique? So, for example, second part of verse 2, it says that the spirit of wisdom and of understanding was in him, the spirit of counsel and of might, and the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And every single sentence there, every single word in this text matters, and it's extremely important because it's the description of what makes Jesus unique. So, for example, when it says that Jesus, the spirit, uh, that Jesus has the spirit of wisdom and understanding, this is a, a judi- the prophet is using judicial terms. In other words, he's saying that this king, the king of kings, King Jesus, is a king that rules like nobody else rules. That he knows what to do, when to do it, and how to do it. That there is no other king like King Jesus that knows exactly how to rule, when to rule, and how to rule. It also tells us that he's got the spirit of counsel and might, And not only he knows what to do, when to do it, and how to do it, but he has the power to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. So he's not just a king that has wishful thinking. He's not just a king that has good plans and good ideas and a good vision. It's actually a king that has the power to accomplish what he set out to do. And then he describes Jesus as the one with the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. The word knowledge there is the same word that we use for truth. Meaning that he's a king that really, really relies on truth and he is the source of truth. And that everything he does, he does it out of reverence, admiration, and love for the Father. Now listen up, church. If that is true, and the Bible says it is, then we can say, as Christians, we can say that there is no earthly king 
No political figure, no governmental representative, no political party, no philosopher, no historical hero, no leader, no advisor, no counselor, no strategist, and no spiritual leader that could come close to who Jesus is and what Jesus can do. That cannot come close to Jesus at all. See, if Jesus is the true and everlasting king, because he knows how to rule his kingdom. Because he is the king that knows what to do, when to do it, and how to do it. Because he is the only king that has the power to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. Because he is the king that everything he does, he does it in truth, and he does it truthfully, and he does it because he loves his father. This is the question for us. Is there a reason why we should put our hope in any other king? Is there a reason why we should put our hope in any other leader? There is no other leader. There is no other king. There is no, there's no one else that has the wisdom, the understanding, the power, the knowledge, and the fear of the Lord the way Jesus does. Therefore, trust and rest in him and him alone. Now, the, the Bible doesn't stop there. And the text doesn't stop there. Because actually the text explains why is it that Jesus does everything the way he does. And the Bible is going to show you that the reason why Jesus is the way he is and he does the things he does is because he inwardly delights in who God is and outwardly, outwardly he's committed to righteousness. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord, verse 3 and verse 4, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. Because in his heart, he delights in who God is and what God wants, and outwardly he's committed to righteousness. If that is true, and the Bible says it is, then we could always trust that not only Jesus always does everything in perfect communion with the Father, listen up, but everything but that Jesus is committed to what is right. That Jesus would never do anything that is wrong because he's a righteous king. So let me ask the question again. Why should we trust any other leader? Why should we trust any other king? Jesus would always do what is right. Why put our hope on broken leaders and broken heroes and broken systems? No one is trustworthy enough. No one is reliable enough. No one is pure enough. No one is perfect enough. Just King Jesus. Committed to righteousness. Actually, Isaiah is going to say that Jesus is so committed to righteousness so committed to what is right, that that's the reason why he cares for the needy and he exercises justice for the poor. But with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. I want you to listen to this really clear, church. God cannot look at the needy and the poor and look away. God cannot look at the needy, the people that are struggling and lack something, the most basic things. And God cannot look at the injustice toward the poor and look away, and look away. The question is then, do we have permission to do that then? If God, if God cares for the needy, and exercises justice for the poor, don't you think that that's the same call the church has? This is the reason why Proverbs 31, verse 8 and verse 9 says, speak up for those that cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Verse 9, speak up and judge fairly, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. Did you know the word rights? In the book of Proverbs, it's the same word that is used for claim. 
That because people, poor people, needy people, are created in the, uh, in the image of God with dignity and value, they have the right to claim what rightly they deserve. Because they were created with dignity and value. From God's perspective, no human being has the right, uh, can be uh, assaulted, defrauded, or killed. From God's perspective, every human being is to be treated with fairness and respect. Don't you think that that is also talking about the issue of racism? If God cares for the needy, and God cares for justice for the poor, don't you think that we ought to care for that too? Let me give you a definition of justice. I think it's a biblical definition of justice by Crawford Loritz. He says, justice is that the conceived must live. That's why we go against abortion, people. Justice is that the living must be cared for. That's what we talk about. That's why we uh, go against racism and prejudice. And justice is that the poor and the disadvantaged must be defended. That's God, that's Jesus' character, that's our call. This is the reason why Jesus is our hope. And this is the reason why Jesus is the king of kings like no other kings. He is the king full of wisdom, the king full of understanding, the king full of power, the king full of knowledge, the king full of the fear of the Lord, the king that delights in the communion with the Father, a king that is committed to, the, to do right, and a king that is compassionate and merciful and full of grace that is not indifferent to the pains and the struggles of his people. He is a king of kings, Lord of lords. I need someone to please explain to me why is it that it's so easy for us to trust people like if they were Jesus? Please explain that to me. Why is it that we struggle broken uh, trust broken people and broken systems when Jesus is the king? Now, Isaiah doesn't stop there, actually. Not only he describes the character of Jesus and why Jesus is unique and why is it that Jesus was given this special task, but Isaiah is going to explain what Jesus came to do, what Jesus came to bring. So for this section, I want you to, I want you to consider that Jesus came almost like a, like a two-part series, if you will. One is what he came to do when he lived, died, and resurrected, which initiated everything else. And the second part is what he's going to come to complete or finalize when he comes back. And for that, we're going to talk about the kingdom of hope. Now, I find this section amazing. I find this section amazing simply for one reason. Because it describes Jesus as this king that not only comes to offer salvation, that not only comes to bring us home, that not only is coming to take us to heaven, but it actually, actually paints a picture of this king that comes to restore all things. A king that comes to bring heaven to earth. A king that is committed to the renewal of all things. A king that came to fulfill what we all want. This sort of uh, spiritual utopia, if you will. Actually, verse 11 describes what Jesus came to do as a resting place. Listen, do you, do you know what that is? I, I got to take that stuff out. Do you know what that is? Do you know what it means to be in a resting place? To be in a resting place is when you find you play yourself in a place in which there's no pain, no struggle, no pain. You're not tired. You're not, uh, you're not struggling. It's a place in which you can sit and enjoy life. And the Bible is going to describe what Jesus came to do as a resting place, the spiritual utopia. Whether you're a Christian or not, whether you already, already surrendered to life, your life to Jesus Christ or not, every single one of us 
in person or online, we all want the same thing. We want a resting place. Actually, I would argue that every single one of us have an idea of what a resting place looks like. We all know that there's something wrong with the world. We all know that this is not the way it is supposed to be. We all know that death, for example, is abnormal. That's why it hurts. I think that the Bible is going to argue that the reason why we know that this is abnormal is because God has placed eternity in our hearts. Have you ever wondered why is it that there are so many songs about love? How many of you guys like love songs? Raise your hand. Like three romantic people. The rest of you guys not romantic? All right. The reason why we sing so much about love is because we love love. We are in love with love. And the reason why we're in love in love is because we know deep down inside what love's supposed to be. Have you ever seen Miss Universe or things like that? And when they ask the ladies, what do they want from the world? What, don't, what do they want in the world? The answer is always the same. Peace in the world. Because we all know that this is not the way this is supposed to be. Have you ever wondered why 95% of the movies have happy endings? Because a movie with a lame ending, it does not sell. Because we all want happy endings. Have you ever wondered why we're so moved by beautiful things? And we hate broken things. Because deep down inside, we all want a resting place. And the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of the good news of Jesus Christ is not only that Jesus comes to bring salvation and to take us home, but he comes for the renewal of all things, spiritual and physical. The renewal of all things. So here in the text, we're going to find that he does three things. Or he came to bring and later on culminate three things. And it's three R's. He comes to reconcile. He comes to restore. And he comes to remove. He comes to reconcile, to restore, and to remove. Look at here the first one. He comes to reconcile in verse 6. This is a metaphor. So it says, the wolf will live with the lamb, and the leper will lie down with the goats, the calf and the lion, and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. And notice here that there's two different parties represented, the predator and the prey. And it shows us something there abnormal for this present world. It tells us that the wolf and the lamb are together and that the wolf and the, uh, the wolf and the lamb are together and that the leper and the goat are together and that they're not eating one another which is crazy because then tacos will be out of the picture but notice here what the metaphor is inviting us to embrace it actually tells us that when jesus came he came to destroy old hostilities and to unify old enemies. And that one day, all hostilities and all enemy feelings will disappear. The gospel does what nobody else can do. Jesus came to do what nothing else can do. to get rid of old hostilities and to unify old enemies. The gospel in Jesus Christ brings reconciliation. And that reconciliation took effect when Jesus resurrected. And the moment if you're a Christian that accepted Jesus as a Lord and Savior, and one day Jesus will return to fully complete this reconciliation. 
You know, I, I know that you're familiar with the story of Elizabeth Elliot, right? I've always found that story so amazing, not so much because there were missionaries in Ecuador and all of these things, but I find it amazing that Elizabeth Elliot, Elliot was, a, was a willing and capable by the power of the gospel to forgive the man that killed her husband. Even more crazy is that he becomes part of the family. That's what Jesus came to do. You have never, ever, ever been in a place and in a time in which there are no broken relationships, no racism, no church divisions, no deception, no resentment, no betrayal, no distrust, no divorce, no abandonment. None of us have ever been in a place like that. And yet Jesus says that that's what he came to do and that's what eventually he will do. He will end all hostility and disunity. One day he promised that he will culminate that. That's our kingdom hope. That's what Christians are looking for. Not only Jesus came to bring reconciliation, but Jesus came to restore. Verse 7, another metaphor. The cow will feed with the bear, the young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like an ox. And notice that this is now a cow and a bear and a lion and an ox eating the same thing. I mean, if you know anything about nature, you know what cows, that cows eat grass, but not a bear. The bear eats the cow. You know what a lion eats, and it's not grass. The lion eats the ox. So what is it that the prophet is telling us about Jesus? He tells us that Jesus lives, dies, and resurrects. Not only to bring reconciliation, but to change our nature. And that one day, he will completely restore our nature. Like it was in Genesis 1 and 2 in the Garden of Eden in which everything was pure, beautiful and perfect, and there was not a hint of sin. See, we know that when Jesus came, lived, died, and resurrected, not only, and then he sends the Spirit, not only he does that to free us, to give us freedom from the penalty of sin and the power of sin, but he says that one day when he returns, he will deliver us from the presence of sin. Written by the church is a family, right? And if we are family, we can be honest with one another, right? How many of you guys struggle with sin? Raise your hand. Is there anyone here or online that does not struggle with sin? Can you raise your hand so we could pray for you? <laughs> this is the thing. I don't know about you, but for me, I'm so tired of dealing with my sin. I'm so tired of being tempted and falling and doing dumb things. And some that I'm so tired of seeing what my sin could do, my relationship with God and to the people I love and to what it does to me. I'm so tired of not being able to be in a place in which sin is not present. And let's say that it's not even my personal sin, it's the sin of somebody else. I'm paying the consequences of somebody else's sin. Oh, how much I long for the day that sin is no longer there. I hope you know that everything we do is tainted by sin. By sin. You've never been in a place or in a time in which sin is not present. Yes, we love our people, but we, sometimes we love ourselves much more. Don't you think so? That's what we like to win. Yeah, even, even as I do, the good things I do, even the, the good things you do right now, preaching this sermon, and I could honestly say before the Lord that I'm preaching this sermon for the glory of God and your joy, but there's a part of me that is preaching this sermon because I also want glory for me. Why do you think that I'm wearing glasses? It just looks cool. Thank you, brother. It went like this. 
I'm so tired. Aren't you tired that nothing we do is truly altruistic, selfless, and noble? <laughs> you know, my daughter said, I'm going to make the point super clear, okay? Because, you know, some of us believe that little ones are innocent and pure, right? We would say, well, yeah, adults struggle with this, but not kids. So my, my daughters were showing me this video about this girl that won this award some, in India. Uh, the girl's in India, and she, she wins this award, right? And then she receives the award, and then she tells to everyone in national television, oh, I love, uh, I love my daddy, my superhero. And everyone is like, oh, that is so beautiful. But then the girl runs to the dad and hugs him. And then... To look at that camera, she hugs them and she goes, there it is. I'm sure that this cute yet sinful girl loves the daddy and he's a superhero. But she wanted glory. And we are all like that. And what the prophet Isaiah says is that Jesus comes to change our nature. And that one day we're going to be completely free from the presence of sin. You know when I dream about this the most? When I see my brothers and sisters is struggling with sin and sacrificing the people they love because of sin. That's why Jesus is the king of kings. That's why we have a kingdom hope. That's what we're looking forward to. Jesus not only comes to reconcile and to restore, but to remove. Verse 8 Metaphor again, the infant will play near the cobra's den and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. Do you remember what happened in Genesis chapter 3 in which there was a serpent present? Do you remember that because of the serpent, sin enters the world? Do you remember how Jesus not only cursed the serpent, but cursed the earth? And then Genesis chapter 3 says that there will be enmity between the serpent and the woman's seed. That will be Jesus. So what is Isaiah saying here? That Jesus lived, died, and resurrected. That Jesus came to break or remove the curse that was given. That was given to the earth. That Jesus comes to remove to completely remove the curse and the effects of the curse. And Isaiah is inviting us to picture this in the future. So we look forward to a day in which the effects and the consequence of the curse would also disappear. That's Romans chapter 8, if you were with us during that series. The earth will stop groaning for liberation. We will stop groaning for liberation. One day. One day, no more decay. One day, no more fading away. One day, no more sickness. One day, no more unsatisfaction. One day, no more death. One day, no more longing. One day, no more pain. One day, no more suffering. Only joy, peace, cursed, removed. That's what we're hoping for. That's what we desire and we're looking for. And the prophet puts everything as a summary here in verse 9. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters covers the sea. Jesus not only came to bring salvation and to take you home. 
Jesus came to reconcile, to restore, and to remove. And one day, he will return to completely reconcile, restore, and remove. That's our kingdom hope. So here's a question for you, really quick. Does that really matter? Is this just good information that we ought to have, or does this really matter? And I want to give you five reasons why I think that if you are a Christian or you become a Christian, you cannot live your life without that kind of hope. Not only as Jesus as your hope, but the kingdom of Jesus as your hope. Five reasons. Reason number one. Hope is endurance. You know, Victor Frank, which was a psychologist that was uh, incarcerated in one of the, the concentration camps, he wrote a book called Men in Search of Meaning. And, and in that book, he describes his experience being in a concentration camp. And he noticed that there, are, that there were three types of people in a concentration camp. Everyone's suffering. But there was a group of people that would become brutal. And in order to, for them to survive, they would start killing other people just to survive. The second kind of people were the cynics. The ones that gave up on life because things were so complicated that they would just give up on life. But there was a third group of people. The ones that endured. And they endured because they knew that there was an ending to that war. That's how it is for us as Christians. Our hope is not, oh, maybe things are going to get better. Our hope is that things will get better because Jesus lived, uh, lived, died, and resurrected. Jesus promised that the best is yet to come. Reason number two, hope is motivation. See, we know that Jesus came to reconcile, restore, and remove, and that one day he will completely reconcile, restore, and remove. That is the motivation for us to contribute to what the Lord is already doing. You know, I, m minutes ago I mentioned that there is, we all as a church ought to care for the needy and the poor. Do you know why we ought to do that? Because God likes it and because we know that he's using that to restore all creation. That's our motivation. Reason number three, hope is security. Watch here. This is 1 Peter chapter 1. It says that those of us that have been born again, we have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance, future hope, that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Meaning that what is promised in the future, we will get there. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. Let, let me put it in a different way. God is keeping you for that, you will make it home, even if you die. That's security. You know, one of the people in the Bible that impressed me the most, actually, no, let me, let me save it for the next one. Hope, if that is true, then hope is no fear. It doesn't mean that you don't feel fear, but it means that you're not controlled by fear. There's this sentence in the Hunger Games. I don't know, I know you guys don't watch those kind of movies, but the Hunger Games, there's a sentence that was said by President Snow in which he says, hope is the only thing stronger than fear. I completely agree with that. There's an author called Jennifer Donnelly. She says in one of her books, there is nothing more dangerous than hope. Do you know why these people say that? Because if you know that what is coming and you know that God is going to keep you for that. Even when we go through pain, we're not controlled through that pain. You know, this is, the story, this is what I wanted to use. One of the, the people in the Bible that intrigued me the most about this topic is Paul. You know that famous sentence in which he says, uh, for, me to lie, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain? Famous phrase. You know why he says that? Because the people that are persecuting him says, well, you know what? We're going to let you live and suffer. And Paul's answer was, well, to live, for me to live is Christ. And then he says, you know what? The people say, you know what? Never mind. We're going to kill you. And Paul says, all right, for me to, lie, to die is gain. How do you destroy a man like that? 
That's Christianity for us. Does it matter what we go through? Hope is no fear. Hope is security. Hope is peace. Hope is motivation. And lastly, hope is present discontentment. If you know what is coming, why be satisfied with this? If you know what is yet to come, why be satisfied with the tiny little things we have here? Long for that. So we talked about the king of hope, the kingdom of hope, and lastly, let's talk about unexpected hope. And the reason why I gave this title is because of this verse. In that day, the root of Jesse, which it will be Jesus, will stand as a banner for the peoples. And the nations will rally to him. Will be, he will be like a magnet. And his resting place will be glorious. So listen, when we hear about Jesus, everyone was expected in the Old Testament a king. Nobody had ever seen a king like Jesus. Right? A king that he, a king that he was uh, full of wisdom and understanding and power and knowledge and the fear of the Lord. But the word banner in the text is the same word that is used for a sign. So Jesus will be like a magnet and there will be a sign in which that would say that whatever is promised of the future will, be, will become a reality. You know what that sign is in the New Testament? The cross. And this is the reason why this kingdom was unexpected. Because they, ne they had never seen a king. They had never seen a king that was so full of wisdom and understanding and power and knowledge and the fear of the Lord that would be willing to sacrifice himself and die in order to reconcile and restore and remove there had never been a king like that. See, the kings would always send somebody else to die for someone else. No king would sacrifice himself for his people. And this is why we celebrate Christmas. And this is why we remember. And this is why we worship the king of kings and we hope for, this, for the kingdom that is yet to come. Because we have a king that has it all and can do it all. And he died for, for us on our behalf. No other king like King Jesus. Do you know that king? Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you. Because you really, really are like no other king. And that you truly promise a kingdom, like a kingdom that we don't find anywhere else. I pray, Lord, that during this season of Christmas, during this season of Advent, we may be able to see and embrace and believe in this king of kings that not only comes to reconcile, to give us salvation and to bring us home, but a king that comes to restore and renew and remove all broken things. And one day, he will magnify that in ways that we can even imagine. Please help us believe. Help us believe. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And we all say? In response, we invite you to reflect on Mary's response to God's fulfillment of his promises in Jesus Christ with hope.
My soul will magnify the Lord. I rejoice in God, my Savior, in the wonder of His favor. For He has done great things for me. He was mindful of His servant. Every age shall call me blessed. The hope of My soul will magnify the Lord for his grace on those who fear him through every generation. The proud he scatters to the wind as the ruler's strength is broken and the rich are left with nothing. The Satisfied, our portion and our treasure, our hope and help forever. My soul will magnify the rejoice in God my Savior in the wonder of his favor. So as we finish our service, I want to remind you that every week we love to pray for you. So if you have anything that we need to pray for, please let us know. You could always text the word pray. Uh, I think it's prayer to 760-1600. I guarantee you that on Tuesday, someone is going to be praying for your need. With that in mind, can you please stand? I would like to pray for you. The blessing that we find in uh, Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 to, uh, through 26. Let the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face to you and give you peace. And the church says, have a blessed day. Thanks for coming. We love you. Church, you are sent.